Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. At the United Auto Workers Union Convention of 1955, John D. was appointed president of New York's Local 102, despite never working in any related industry. A year later, the New York City Crime Commission and Manhattan District Attorney Frank Hogan accused Local 102 and 227 of various wrongdoings. In February of 1953, the AFL-CIO ordered the United Auto Workers International to revoke Local 102's charter or face suspension. The UAW dissolved Local 102. The Manhattan DA's office convicted DeGuardi in state tax evasion charges, but he returned to union politics over UAW-AFL President Lester Washburn's opposition. In April 1954, Washburn expelled DeGuardi from the Union and lifted six local charters dominated by him. The UAW-AFL's executive board overruled Washburn, reinstating and clearing DeGuardi of any wrongdoing. Eventually, DeGuardi resigned. In 1955, a Senate subcommittee investigated Chicago's uaw AFL Local 286, which was dominated by Angelo Cisco, a notorious organized crime figure. On February 1956, the UAW-AFL revoked the local's charter, but rescinded its action the following day. They then allowed DeGuardi to disaffiliate the local and to take one-fifth of the entire international union's assets. On August 27, 1956, the Committee on Ethical Practices declared that Allied Industries Workers of America, the new name for the United Auto Workers AFL local, may be dominated and controlled or substantially influenced in violation of the AFL-CIO Constitution. The AFL-CIO gave them a choice of accepting a monitorship and eliminating corrupt influences within 90 days or be expelled. They complied, tossing four locals from New York out and replacing the international president. October of 1957, the probationary status was removed and a few months later, they ended the monitoring. David Beck's conduct at the McClellan Committee hearings 
prompted the AFL-CIO Executive Board to suspend Beck from the Council and to order an investigation of the IBT. The results reported that Beck and Vice President Brewster and Hoffa had misused union resources and union pension funds for personal purposes, used their official position for personal profit and advantage, engaged in improper activities relating to health and welfare funds, engaged in extortion and bribery, failed to abide by the AFL-CIO policy against refusing to cooperate with congressional committees, failed to ensure that racketeers were not granted union charters and that Hoffa had associated with known racketeers, including John D. Gardy, the council ordered the IBT to report on its effort to eliminate corrupt elements by October 25, 1957. The Teamsters showed no interest in complying. Facing federal and state criminal charges, Beck chose not to seek re-election at the 1957 convention. Jimmy Hoffa, with the support of John DeGuardi and other organized crime figures, won the election. The Appeals Committee rejected IBT's appeal and recommended expulsion. At the 1957 convention, the council voted 4-1 to one to expel the IBT. The IBT no longer had to abide by the Federation's no-rating pact. In the next two decades, the IBT formed locals to represent teachers, security guards, police officers, and many other workers. The IBT became by far the largest and strongest private sector union, with about 2 million members in 1960. The AFL-CIO opposed a union member's bill of rights and some other proposals, but eventually supported a union financial disclosure requirement as long as the U.S. Department of Labor, DOL, would be the responsible federal agency. John Lewis, president of the United Mine Workers of America, UMW, opposed any remedial legislation. I am completely impatient with the attitude of the present leaders of American labor who are, in effect, at the present time, saying to the Federal Congress, Please, gentlemen of the Congress, hurry up and enact a statute that will compel leaders to be honest and stop us from thieving from our members. The Kennedy-Ives bill requiring registration of pension and welfare plans with the Secretary of Labor, detailed reporting of receipts and expenditures, and public disclosure. In addition, the bill provided criminal penalties for failures to file false filings and embezzlement, passed in the Senate but failed in the House of Representatives. In 1958, the Democrats won majorities in both houses Senator McClellan introduced a Bill of Rights for Union members which passed by a one-vote margin. The Lundrum-Griffin Act required unions to file with the Department of Labor reports on income, expenditures, and salaries. It required bonding of officers and staff members. It forbade officers from having certain conflicts of interest, and it prohibited loans of more than $2,000 to officers or members. It empowered the Secretary of Labor to seek judicial relief of union members' rights, to seek judicial relief if union members' rights were denied or their benefit funds misused. 
The law made embezzling union funds a federal offense. In 1987, the AFL-CIO made a statement against the rumored Department of Justice civil RICO suit against the IBT. If the Justice Department brings suit seeking supervision over an international union, FL-CIO will do whatever is useful and productive in the legal circumstances to prevent such supervision. We support full and vigorous law enforcement aimed at the racketeers and the sharpsters who seek to prey on our movement. The government has an obligation to trade unions and their members to provide such enforcement. In 1989, President Kirkland testified before the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. In 1990, the committee report recommended that RICO trusteeships in labor cases be imposed in the most extreme circumstances. In 1996, the House of Representatives Subcommittee on Human Resources and Intergovernmental Relations plan to hold hearings on the Department of Labor's response to labor racketeering cases. In July, the hearing was announced. The FLCIO accused that the hearings was being held because of the Federation's 34 million ad campaign against Republican legislative initiatives. In early 2002, FLCIO criticized the proposed fiscal year 2003 Department of Labor budget for providing a 3.9 million increase for the Office of Labor Management Standards, OLMS, which had requested 3.4 million and 40 additional staff for enhanced enforcement and outreach assistance activities to ensure compliance. The rank-and-file union members are labor racketeers' primary victims. Why do the rank-and-file tolerate such leadership? The most obvious answer is that the uncoordinated many are at the mercy of the highly organized few. Rank-and-file union members have almost no chance of overthrowing organized crime-backed racketeers. Some members have taken action tragically. Scores of such individuals have ended up losing their jobs, their physical security, and even their lives. Why are the rank and file so weak? With a few officers and members who are actively involved in the unions, a closely knit group have it easy to control a union of racketeers. Often the racketeers receive some support and popularity. The racketeer is good at creating a patronage system. If the union has a hiring hall, they give jobs with the best wages or working conditions to friends, allies. If you are a troublemaker, you get the worst of any job. If the employer does the hiring, the racketeer can threaten work actions to get the employee to fire troublemakers. Anyone running for office faces intimidation, violence, and even death. The current officer will be known by members can use the union newsletter. Incumbents cannot legally use union personnel and resources for their campaigns. Reality is they do. They use red baiting, using the idea that, that a descendant is a communist 
are a radical. 5% attend regular union meetings. 25% or less actually vote at union elections. Many are unaware of who runs their union. If they are doing a good job or not, often unaware that the officer is involved in organized crime, an associate of or a puppet. The officer controls the elections where, when, and how the election will be held, they count the ballots and report the results. Under the Lundrum Griffin Act, only the Department of Labor can go to court on election challenges, and the Department of Labor can initiate a challenge only after an investigation confirms that election fraud probably made a difference in election results. Descendant movements have popped up, but it is impossible to determine each one's strength as the internet permits an individual to create a website. The Teamsters for a Democratic Union, TOU, is the best known and most effective rank and file reformist organization. Founded in 1976, it merged with the Professional Drivers Council in 1980, retaining the same name. It was concerned with safety, lobbied for improved safety conditions in the trucking industry. They surveyed workers, organized committees to analyze safety and other problems, then came up with rank and file contract demands for contracts. In the beginning, their focus was improving contracts, but it gradually turned its attention to reforming the union's governance. By the mid-1980s, they had a newsletter, Convoy Dispatch, and claimed to have 10,000 members. They created rank-and-file Bill of Rights, which can be found on their website. In a campaign for Ron Carey, in the 1991 trustee-supervised election and helped make Carey's victory possible, even though they later off and criticized Kerry's administration. Kerry supported TOU won again in 1996 against a strong challenger, James P. Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa's son. Accusations that the Kerry campaign had used union funds, ultimately the court-appointed elections officer voided the election, disqualified from the rerun election and the IRB expelled him from the union. There is no other dissident rank-and-file labor movement with the strength of TOU. There are always dissidents, and more now with the creation of the Internet. The Association of Union Democracy, AUD, founded by Herman Benson and a few other labor radicals, is the only independent non-governmental organization with a small office in Brooklyn that advocates and litigates on behalf of rank-and-file union members. It has a few paid staffers and a tiny budget. It publishes a regular newsletter, Union Democracy Review, which exposes assaults on union democracy as well as the occasional legal and electoral victories of the rank-and-file reformers. They conduct training courses, conferences, and educational programs. Dissidents from any union can contact AUD for advice, including sometimes legal assistance 
from a very small number of volunteer lawyers. The U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, also called the Copeland Committee, in 1933 held hearings within national and local labor organizations. Employer witnesses complained that labor racketeers extorted payoffs by threatening business, destroying labor problems. This led to passage of a federal extortion statute, the Racketeering Act of 1934. Labor leaders fought against the draft bill saying it could be used to prosecute strikes and job actions. The final bill exempted from the definition of extortion union conduct aimed at the payment of wages by a bona fide employer to a bona fide employee and included a union-friendly provision that no court of the United States shall construe or apply any of the provisions of this act in such a manner as to impair, diminish, or in any manner affect the rights of bona fide labor organizations in lawfully carrying out the legitimate objectives thereof as such rights are expressed in existing statutes of the United States. Federal prosecutors used this law to prosecute a couple of teamsters who prevented out-of-town trucking companies from driving trucks into New York City unless the companies paid the Teamster defendants for guiding the trucks. The Supreme Court reversed the convictions holding that the exemption from prosecution of bona fide union demands, even if unreasonable, making this law useless against racketeers. In 1946, Congress passed the Hobbs Act, which eliminated the exemption in the Anti-Racketeering Act that was used mainly against hijackers, corrupt state and local politicians, and rarely against racketeers. In 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a case. The defendant union officials attempted to extort money by forcing an employer to pay fictitious and superfluous services. The court upheld the convictions, but in 1973, the Supreme Court reversed a Hobbs Act conviction against strikers who had used high-powered rifles and explosives on the grounds that the Hobbs Act could not be used to punish individuals for pursuing a lawful union goal, even via criminal means. In 1947, Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act which was to restore a more balanced relationship between labor and management. President Harry Truman vetoed the act, but Congress overrode the veto. The act gave employees the right to refrain from participating in union activities, added certain union conduct in LRA's list of unfair labor practices, and banned communists from serving as union officers. It made it a federal crime for an employer to give or lend money or anything of value to a union, union officer, or union welfare fund, and for labor officials to demand or accept anything of value from an employer. The United States Supreme Court upheld the conviction of ILA President Joseph Ryan for taking payoffs from a stevedoring company in violation of the Taft-Hartley Act. Ryan had been given $1,000 a year by the company president from 1946 to 1951. 
The district court found Ryan guilty, but the Court of Appeals reversed the finding. The Supreme Court reinstated the conviction. This was in 1956. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. (music) 